0: Luke chapter 9 verses 46 through 56 An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest but Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side and said to them whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he who is least among you all is the one Who is great? John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, "'Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them?' But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. "'Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever.'" So this morning we are jumping back into the Gospel of Luke, which is our 40th uh, sermon through the the Gospel of Luke. We've got a long ways to go, so I thought we're going to take the opportunity, New Year's Eve, to jump back into it. But it's convenient because I was trying to think about earlier in the week of possibly should we do some sort of New Year's Eve, you know, or New Year's planning, the years turning over, should we do kind of a, a New Year's Eve sermon. But I opened up the text of Luke and this uh, I seem to have a text that kind of fulfills both purposes. We get to start Luke back up and continue our march. And it has um, pertinence, I think, to the idea of what so many try to accomplish in their New Year's Eve resolutions, making plans for 2018, wanting the next year to be the best that it can be. And how, how do we make our lives, make our years, how do we make... Our lives great. How do we make things great? So we were, that's where we're going this morning in the Gospel of Luke. We, we left off, if you remember, back in November, after the transfiguration, Jesus lights up bright white with a, on the mountain there. Moses and Elijah show up, and they have this amazing, miraculous event they come down off the mountain. There's the healing of the boy with the unclean boy. He's got a demon and he's healed by Jesus. And interposed in all of that are these declarations that begin to happen from Jesus about his coming suffering. He's going to be uh, murdered. He's going to be captured by the officials. He's going to, be, he's going to suffer. There's, there's all this description that begins to start coming out of the mouth of Jesus toward his coming time in Jerusalem and his suffering that is approaching and the disciples don't get any of it right they, and it just says it plain in the text Jesus starts making these claims they have no idea what he's talking about they verse you look up in verse 43 44 and 45 Jesus says let these words sink into your ears the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men that's not a good thing to have happen but verse 45, but they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so they may not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So pressed up with this beginning of these declarations of the coming suffering capture of Jesus, this total misunderstanding there of the mission itself on the part of the disciples. They have no idea what Jesus is about. They've got an idea in their head of what they think this wonderful ministry should be, and Jesus is taking it a different direction. He has declared to them that his mission is going to be one of service. He's going to be the giving of his very life. And Luke highlights in bringing these stories together, and Luke has less flair in the narrative here. He just takes the, the bulk of what's going on and crams it all together here at the end of this event of the transfiguration and coming down the end of the Galilean ministry, really. Luke crams them all together and he highlights this contrast. It becomes very clear, this contrast. Jesus has a mission. It's to come. It's to suffer. He's going to be delivered over into the hands of men and the disciples are asking questions like this. Which one of us is the best? Which one of us is top dog? Look at all those people out there that they're not as good as we are. We're the elites. There's this giant contrast between Christ's mission and therefore the mission we find out of, yes, all Christians, and the kind of natural bent we all have to our own self-exaltation. And there's this huge contrast that comes out. This it's in total contrast to the heart of Christianity. The disciples' desires to be great. It's in total contrast. Romans twelve three says this: "says for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned." That the whole. Motive or mindset of a Christian is not to be thinking of themselves, how do I become great? How do I make myself higher? How do I get my due? But is to think of themselves not more highly than they ought, but with sober judgment. This is not what the disciples want, though, is it? They, they want to figure out who's the top dog, who's the greatest among them. They wanted to strut their stuff over how important they felt. And so Jesus references this child he, he goes to this analogy. They, they're asking amongst themselves, who's the greatest? And Jesus brings this child out. And he says, whoever receives this child receives Jesus himself. And whoever receives Jesus then receives the Father. And the idea that he's communicating there is that it's putting these children who are not real elevated in this culture this time. Children are a burden. Eventually they'll grow up and be able to contribute. But children are not necessarily this worthwhile Investment, like we think of them now today. The idea of Christian adoption and Christians going out and saving the children that had been left on the street is a, is a Christian idea of valuing life at every stage. Very much so that wasn't necessarily present at this day and time. But Jesus grabs this child and he's saying that putting children, those who have very low value within their culture, putting them above yourself to take care of them is truly godly work ...that keeps you close to Jesus. This is totally counter to our thinking today. We're consumed today with how many Twitter followers we can get. This is my generation or maybe others. Consumed with how many people can I get to like my post on Facebook. How many responses can I get out of this idea or whatever. Just constantly about how do I make myself bigger... How do I make myself more popular? How do I get more attention? How do I become more a presence in people's minds? There's nothing more alluring seemingly in our culture than the idea of, of our celebrity culture. We, want that these, we parade around all of these reality TV show figures and all these people, and that the goal of life is to become a household name. How do I make myself great? This is the pull of our sinful nature. That as we have fallen from God, we have become bent in upon ourselves, and our main goal is how do I exalt myself? Not how do I exalt God, but how do I, in fact, take God down, and how do I exalt myself? This is what we are seeking so often in our selfish, sinful flesh. But Jesus says the exact opposite. He says the way we achieve greatness is not by making ourselves great, but the way that we achieve greatness is by becoming low and becoming the servant of all. The way you become great is not by parading yourself around and making yourself great. True greatness comes in lowering yourself and becoming the servant. Mark says in his gospel, the parallel account, Mark 9.35 says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That's the first Uh, Critique Jesus has on this desire to be great. The second desire they seek out is elitism of their tribe. They're seemingly they're not getting this message from Jesus about his mission. And so, after some time that passed here, they asked Jesus this question about people who were ministering in Jesus's name but weren't really a part of their group. They weren't part of their tribe, and the disciples didn't like somebody else getting the credit. Hey, we're the Jesus people. We don't want somebody else getting the credit. They didn't like someone getting the credit and the accolades that they felt like they were due. So then Jesus tells them of a mindset that's totally counter to their thinking and our thinking. And it's this, that if someone else is doing well, you should rejoice with them. You should be glad that they are doing well. It's counter to and in total contrast to our natural inclinations that if someone else is doing well, you should be glad for them. If they are not against us, then good for they are for us. This idea of they wanted to elevate themselves. How do we become great? And how dare somebody else use the name of Jesus if it isn't going to make much of us self-centered, self-glorifying, seeking self-greatness. And lastly, the disciples in the last part of our text from this morning They go wild with this desire to make war against the other tribes. Not only do they not want to rejoice in them doing well, but when they are not at a place of where they want them to be, where they think they should be, this Samaritan group, what do they want to do? They literally ask Jesus if he wants them to call down fire from heaven and consume them. Now, that's a legitimate request out of the creator of the universe. He could have done that, right? I mean, I know that's outlandish, but we have Old Testament stories where we could talk about the wrath of God coming down on those who reject God. could have done it. Jesus instead rebukes them. There's, there's no extension of grace towards others from them. They're living by this mindset that because they were great and their tribe was special, everyone outside of themselves deserved to die and my goodness, this is a popular mindset in our world today. We have this world word tolerance that has totally lost its meaning in our culture. Tolerance now means that uh, we have to affirm everything unless it's a view. We have to affirm every view unless it's a view that says affirming every view is not okay. Does that make, I don't know if that makes sense or not. But tolerance now means everything's okay, everyone's okay, unless they don't say everything's Okay? <laughs> It's a self-defeating, everything's okay unless you dare to be someone who doesn't say everything's okay. Then you no longer get tolerance. But true Christian tolerance is is this Christ's desire for tolerance to be practiced. A tolerance that says we can disagree strongly about what is right and what is wrong, yet keep from the desire to wipe everyone that's not like me off the face of the planet. That Jesus, these Samaritans, and now we could go to John 4, where Jesus meets the woman at the well, has the conversation with the Samaritan village. These Samaritans aren't where the disciples are yet. They they haven't come to Christ yet. They don't know and don't confess Christ yet. The disciples, what do they want to do? Wipe them out, get rid of them. They want to extend no grace to anyone in, in their pursuit, possibly, of Jesus. They want, James and John, want to terrorize and get rid of this group but they receive the rebuke from Jesus and their desire to make war on those who were not like them these are all things that we should likewise work to practice the idea of not making myself great but becoming the servant of all that when I look around my first opportunity isn't How do I make sure everybody notices me and everybody, you know, I become the BMOC on campus or in town or wherever, but we should look around and ask greatness in this community, greatness in this context, greatness in this church is where can I serve? Where can I go low and help the least of these? Where can I look outside and and not say, well, we're this elite group. Where can I partner with others and, and be glad for their joy in Jesus? Where can I not elevate myself and not be mad that someone else is doing well because I'm not? How can I rejoice in other people's successes? And how can I not look around and say, this person doesn't believe the things that I do, but what I'm going to do instead of wishing them ill is pray for them, hope they come to Christ, encourage them in the idea and and to repent and to trust the gospel. These are all great ideas. But where does the engine for these things come from? How do we, so if we want 2018 to be great, what I would argue for is taking up these causes would make 2018 great by going low, seeking, being glad for the well-doing of others and seeking to edify others and give others grace to encourage them in their pursuit of Christ. But where does the motive come? Where does the engine to drive life in this direction come from? And I'm going to say it comes from two realities. Two realities give us the motivation to live life by these realities. And the first is from the example that Christ gives us. Christ leads by example here. If you have your Bible out still, you can go to Philippians chapter 2, Pauline epistle. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 2. That's on page 1165 of your Bible, of your Pew Bible. Ephesians Philippians chapter two verses one through 10, says this: "So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others." more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we have this amazing passage of Scripture that tells us about the incredible humility of Jesus. Just when you think about the reality of this, this eternally existing Son of God, from think back as far as you can think and then go past that. This, this this one who created through whom all things were made was nothing made that was made that wasn't made through this one, this creator, this eternal Son of God, the Word of God. This Word of God who through everything, through through whom everything is created, what does he do? He enters into his creation. He becomes man. This is what we've celebrated at Christmas, right? He takes on flesh. And that Jesus would condescend to enter into humanity at that level is enough to marvel at. But then you read on. Not only does this eternally existing member of the triune Godhead take on flesh humbles himself to become a man, he becomes obedient even to the point of death. Death on a cross to serve, to serve. Jesus condescends even further by being, than being born a man. He subjects himself as a servant of mankind by going so far as to lay his life down for the salvation of man. One of the ways we can be motivated is through this example of Christ going low, serving God, Serving the least of these. At the end of the parable uh, of the parallel passage in Mark, uh, says this: Mark chapter ten, verse forty-five says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Our Savior becomes a man and sets the example for all of His followers in the humility that a Christian is to live with a life of humble service to your neighbor for their sake. For the glory of God. What's the motivation to live? To go low? To serve? The example of Christ? Let me be honest. Examples don't help me all that much. I I, I I need the example. I need the picture. I I need to see it. But it's kind of like watching an NBA basketball game. I could watch that example all the rest of the day today, and I no way I'm going to be able to go out and play basketball. I mean, thank you for chuckling because they, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to go play basketball. I could watch as many YouTube videos on all sorts of different things. And there's just, there's no examples. They give you something to aspire to. They give you a goal to seek after and a goal to pursue. But examples, let's be honest, at some level, they can be crushing. I, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, can anybody here dunk a basketball? There's a tall guy, but I don't know. I don't know. Can I, I can't, Dennis. I don't, I don't think he's got the hops anymore. And, but how many videos I watch of this example. Okay, you got to jump off. I, I'm not going to be able to do it. And Christ gives us this example. And it is something to aspire to, to look toward. But let's be honest. There is a motor. Something bigger has got to happen. Something bigger has got to wreck who we are to to motivate us, to give us, pour the fuel into who we are to live this way. So yes, the first motivation is by the example Christ set for us. But the second motivation, the second driver in this motor is that this example that Christ set was service done for us. This service, this example, this going low, this realization that all of that service, it was for me. It was for me. Christ's service was not some hypothetical, you know, look, He did all these things, you should now do them. He did all these things, and who did He do them for? Us sitting in here this morning. He served for your benefit. And when we begin to see this, when we begin to grasp the reality of the grace and the mercy and the love of our great God and Savior, that He would go so low, not just to show us how it's done, but that He would go low so that I would benefit, so that I could be served, so that His joy could be mine. Now we're putting fuel in a motor of joy that says, I've been served in such an incredible way I now, I want to, and I'm not going to do it perfectly, and neither are you. But there's a motor to have been served so abundantly, so mercifully, so graciously. Now I go out and seek to serve. When we read these events and teachings from the life of Jesus, we're often quick to read ourselves into the role of this is what we should do, right? You take a a gospel narrative, and you point out the things. Here's what you should do. You should do this. Huff and I read this morning, uh, The Healing of, of Jairus' Daughter. And one of the ideas is Jairus had faith in Jesus and brought his daughter to Jesus. And is it good to take your problems to Jesus? Absolutely. But oftentimes we read these narratives only in this light of do this, do this, do this, do this. Never seen what has been done. What has been done. And I want to be able to look at this Luke passage and see that... All of these ideas, serving to the least of these, not being elitist, not calling down judgment who aren't there yet, is a service God has done for us, for me. You want to know what gives power to love the least of these? What they Don't, don't be great, but serve. What gives power to love the least of these? To realize that's the category we're all in. It's good news that Jesus says, serve the least of these. You know why? That's all of us. We are the beggars. We are the ones who are lost and without Christ. We all were spiritual beggars until Christ called us to himself. Christ goes low to call people to himself to rescue them from their sins. The reason why it's good news that we go out and serve the least of these and the motor behind it is because Christ has gone out to serve the least of these and we're the benefactor of that work. And it's the joy in that work that then motivates and fuels us to do the same. What enables you to be for those who are not against you, to be glad when things go well for others, it's realizing that it's only by grace that anything goes well at all. Why would anything ever go good for us? The disciples are all caught up in being part of Jesus' group, that they don't want any other group to prosper, seemingly forgetting that they are only in Jesus' group due to His calling his kindness and His grace toward them. Not wanting well for others is to totally miss the fact that I undeservedly had things go well for me. That God called me to Himself not because, boy, I shined myself up and he, I, I really like the looks of that guy, but by His grace and mercy, He saved. He rescued. How can I look at someone else and say, they don't deserve good. I didn't deserve it. Yet, He comes and he serves, he goes low. How can we possibly keep from flying off the handle, wishing for the destruction of those that we disagree with? How can we possibly pray for them, our enemies even? Pray for our enemies. Well, how about by remembering that we too at one time were enemies of God? We were far off from God. The final request from the disciples to, to ruin these people, to light them up with fire would put the disciples in a bad spot. Because they're saying these Samaritans, they don't get what you're doing, Jesus. Let's call down fire on them and just annihilate them. What's the problem? The disciples don't get what Jesus is doing either, do they? I mean, it says right in the text, they have no idea what Jesus is talking about, but they want everybody else who doesn't know what Jesus is talking about, wipe them out. Don't give them a chance to hear the gospel. Don't give them a chance to repent. Just get rid of them. Well, they'd they'd fall under that condemnation themselves and their desire for the Samaritans to receive immediate punishment for not getting it, how would they fare? Because they totally don't get it either. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, just emphasizes this reality. Ephesians 2. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember To the Father, we are those who are cast off, thrown aside, alienated from God. Verse 19, so then, through this work of Christ, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Those outsiders, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. How are all of these separations and condemnations, that, that, how are they taken from us by the work of... We, we deserve to be uh, separated from God. We do not deserve His favor. We do not deserve His love. We deserve His wrath. How are they taken from us? By the work of Christ. How do we, the least, the least of these, which is a description of all of us, how do we get moved from outcasts to citizens? Not by our efforts, by the work of Christ. By the, the Holy One of God, the Son of God, coming low and serving? How do we, the outsiders, get peace with God that we are estranged from? By the work of Christ. How do we, the ones deserving of the instantaneous judgment of God, instead get brought near into the fatherly embrace of a holy God by Christ's blood, by His service? So where does this leave us? Many will be thinking today of New Year's resolutions, and that's great. Many will be thought up and many will have goals to seek their greatness. But they will miss it. They will miss their greatness. They will miss great. And if you want 2018 to be a great year, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Learn this, yes, by looking at the example of our great Savior and live it empowered by the reality that that example was done in service for us. It was for our joy For our own satisfaction, Christ came low and became a servant. We go out, we serve, we become, we are great in God's kingdom by becoming the servants of all, motivated and empowered by His example and the glorious reality. That example, that work was done for those who didn't deserve it. It was done for us. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see and hearts that rejoice in the good news of the gospel as it is for us this good news is for us. Father, as, as we've gotten out this morning and made our way into this building, God, may we not rejoice, we may not fall short of rejoicing in this good news, this service that was done to us, this coming low, this humility that we celebrate now on the Lord's table, broken body, shed blood, service for us so that we by this great example, and fueled by the great love behind it all, leave from this place, serving our neighbor for their good and for your glory. Move now in our hearts in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.